It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown and the podcast. If you're listening to this on YouTube, don't forget that there's a link on the screen or in the description to listen to the whole thing over at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you want, because you're going to want to hear the whole thing with Ethan Skolnick, who, for the next two weeks at least, will still be with Bleacher Report writing on NBA stuff, and you can hear him across the radio airwaves and sometimes on SiriusXM. And Ethan, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to talk to you about the NBA. Good to be with you, Nick. Um, well, you know, I thought in honor of uh, or as an homage to uh, what Howard Beck and Zach Lowe were doing the other day on their on his podcast with uh, the Lakers and their their three peat and the, the interesting discussion there. Uh, you were pretty much ground zero in Miami for uh, the Heat's rise to prominence with LeBron James and the decision. So I thought maybe we could kind of just talk about that and what that was like. Uh, the first time you heard about it. So do you remember where you were, what was going on when the the initial <laughs> shockwaves or even rumors that LeBron might come down to Miami? Do you remember what was happening at that point? Uh, yeah, I remember it well. I'll never forget it. Um, at the time, I was working for the South Florida Sun Sentinel as a columnist. I'd been there for seven or eight years, and I'd been covering the Heat, the Dolphins, primarily the Heat, um, for those, the previous several years. And, you know, obviously we knew Miami was in the mix, but we didn't know it was going to happen. But something strange happened that day, which was that I got word from somebody else at the Sun Sentinel who worked in the advertising department that the Heat had taken out an ad that was going to have LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris together. So I went from believing that really this probably wasn't going to happen, that LeBron ultimately would either stay in Cleveland, maybe go to Chicago, maybe go to New York, uh, but that Miami was still kind of on the outside looking in, that probably the Heat would have Dwayne and Chris, and to all of a sudden thinking, oh my God, this is actually going to happen. But of course, you know, those things, and this is, as this actually turned out, those things sometimes can be a little misleading because the Heat had actually taken out two ads in our paper. I didn't find that out until later. They'd done that with, with all three South Florida papers. And one ad had Chris and Dwayne, and one ad had LeBron in it. So it was basically a hit send uh, when you get the news. And so <laughs> I, I, it's a good thing I didn't go too strong with it, although I guess I would have looked smart at the time. But I, I was basically like a lot of other people. I was watching on television, waiting for Jim Gray to get to the point so we could finally find out exactly where he was going to play. And when uh, he said he was taking his talents to South Beach. Obviously, we knew everything was going to change, and everything did change. Um, for me professionally, you know, I ended up only staying at the at the Sun Sentinel for a few more months because the Palm Beach Post, the paper I'd worked at before, decided to resurrect their Heat beat with LeBron coming down, and decided they wanted someone experienced to be their Heat columnist. And I ended up actually leaving the Sun Sentinel three months after that to go to the Palm Beach Post to cover the Heat full time. So. It changed my career. It changed a lot of people's career. There's a lot of people in South Florida who got much bigger platforms as a result of LeBron coming down. I think we had sort of an idea that night. Um, the night that it really hit me what this was going to be about and that I really wanted to be around it every day, not just as a columnist a couple times a week, was when the Heat had their infamous party, their celebration, uh, which you know I think 
got played worse around the country than it really was. It was really four season ticket holders. But being in the building that night and the energy and the electricity in the building that night and having been around sort of the, I don't know, the moribund dolphins for several years, <laughs> uh, I, I basically decided, okay, um, if there is an opportunity to do this full time, this is what I want to do. And then a couple months later, the opportunity arose. Um, so the party you're talking about is the not one, not two, yes. not three party, right? Um, <laughs> yes. where the, the pyrotechnics and whatnot. Um, but you certainly understood why that might have received some amount of criticism, I imagine, right? Yeah, no, I understood why it received criticism. But I think, again, there was a disconnect um, with South Florida and the rest of the country. And, and I've always said that if LeBron had, well, if LeBron had stayed in Cleveland, there wouldn't have been an issue. But if, Le, you know, there wouldn't have been an issue at all with the decision because it would have been, okay, he raised money for charity and he stayed home. So we watched for nothing, but uh, he did the right thing. If he'd gone to New York, I've always believed that the media would have celebrated it because most of the, na the national media has either ties to New York or is based within 120 miles of New York. And so whether it was ESPN, whether it was some of the major newspapers, um, I've always believed that if he'd gone to New York, there would not have been the backlash that there was with him going to Miami. And part of the problem with Miami is that it's perceived around the country as a vacation town, as a place that, you know, it has a lot of, you know, sort of new immigrants. It, it does not a lot of people have roots in the area. That's not as true anymore as it used to be, but it's kind of the perception of it. And so there was a perception from the very beginning that Miami didn't deserve him, you know, and, and I think that then when when they threw the, you know, sort of the laser light show and LeBron flexed and Bosch spoke Spanish and everything else that happened that <laughs> night, uh, I think that played into the perception of, well, this isn't right. Why is he there? He shouldn't be there. He should be in Cleveland or he should be in a real city like New York. And I think that's really what happened there. And I actually think that colored the next four years, um, I, I, the the you know I was around LeBron a lot this past year covering him in Cleveland, and it was just fascinating to me as the one person who was around him so much for three years in Miami, and then around him so much in Cleveland the next year was that he could say the exact same things, but he got so much more excuse the pun heat for it when he was in Miami. Um, it, it he could it, it was amazing how his perception the perception of him changed when really he wasn't that different um, in one place as opposed to the other. So I kind of feel like he got, and the city of Miami got, this really raw deal in terms of the way that the public and the media viewed them for that period of time in Miami, particularly before LeBron won a championship. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's swung the other direction where when LeBron doesn't win a championship, it's, oh, well, he didn't have enough help. His teammates didn't do enough. If the same thing happened in Miami, LeBron would have, and I, he would have gotten unjustly, unjustly, because he didn't have enough help this year. There's no arguing that. But he would have gotten unjustly killed for it while he was with Miami. So maybe I'm a little bit of a Miami homer seeing that through that lens. But I, I, I just think there has been a real difference in the way that the, the national media has treated his time as when it's been in Cleveland and when it's been in Miami. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, take for sure from your perspective. I think that um, I, what I wanted to talk a little bit also was about, uh, and this is part of the criticism he has he receives nationally, uh, is uh, you know LeBron and how he perceives the coach and mm -hmm. what that role is. And you know it's weird to me because I've heard you know some interesting stories about how he treated Mike Brown in Cleveland. Uh, and how you know he LeBron would sub guys in and he'd call the timeouts and he would you know basically run the huddles. 
Um, but I'm curious what your observation was. We'd seen Mark Stein's article kind of criticizing him about uh, treating uh, Coach Blatt poorly. But what was your take on that, and how did that initially begin when LeBron got there? Uh, how did that relationship play out with him and Coach Bolstra? Well, with Coach Spolster, it's interesting because, you know, now a lot more stuff comes to light now that LeBron's gone. It's a lot easier to kind of <laughs> paint a full picture of exactly what was going on at the time. Uh, the way it's been put to me is that it really took LeBron about a year and a half to let Eric coach him. That that first year, you know, LeBron, Eric didn't put in a lot of offense that first year. He's acknowledged that, you know, and that sort of came to a head against Dallas. They really worked on defense. That's what they drilled. They were very good defensively and they did get to the finals, but offensively, you know, Dwayne and LeBron were tripping over each other quite a bit. Um, that, that second year, you know, especially, you know, before they, they, they made a couple of additions and, and supplemented the roster, you know, that was a time where it, it took LeBron a few months, but at a certain point in that year, the way it's been told to me, maybe January, maybe February, LeBron basically, you know, they had a conversation and LeBron basically said, okay, you know, let's, let's try it your way. And, and that was transformative. And I think if you look at what happened then in the postseason where of that year where Chris Bosh gets hurt, where they had to make, you know, Eric threw a lot of things at the wall. I don't know if you remember Dexter Pittman's infamous run as a starter against Indiana in the second round, mm -hmm. uh, Roni Turioff, uh, a whole bunch of different players before Eric kind of stumbled onto small ball with Shane Battier. Um, and then Bosh comes back, Battier stays at the four and LeBron also playing a lot of four. I, I think that was the period of time where Eric, Eric over that stretch, won more trust and respect from LeBron. And actually, you know, during sort of the second half of that second year and the third year, LeBron was one of Eric's biggest allies. Um, now, things soured a little in the fourth year, but that wasn't just for LeBron and Eric. Um, that was for a lot of people. Uh, they got tired of each other, of us. Uh, the whole thing was exhausting. I mean, a piece that I, I did a sit down with Dwayne Wade before last season where he said flatly last year wasn't fun. Uh, they just, it just became too much. I think the cumulative effect of all the games, all the media, all the pressure. By the time they got to the fourth year, you know, Ray wasn't happy uh, with Eric for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the, you know, LeBron wasn't happy that he was having to carry so much of the load. He wasn't really thrilled that Dwayne was out so much where they were trying to, you know, as close as they are, that sort of became a little bit of a stressor. Um, and then Eric defensively, I think what, what really came to a head defensively in that fourth year and this came across where, you know, LeBron and I have had very few sort of salty interactions over the years. But one of them was in the finals where where basically San Antonio was running them roughshod all over the court. And the Heat were still playing that very aggressive blitzing trapping defense without the athletes to play it anymore and without the guys who were as focused as they were previously. Um, and so I had asked LeBron after the game press conference, I think it was after game four when they went down 3-1, is this something that you guys need to uh, just do harder or is this a tactical adjustment that needs to be made? And I think LeBron, do a harder, do it harder is, is an Eric phrase. And I think LeBron heard Eric with my statement. And so he said to me, is, is, that, is that a setup question? This was at the podium. And I said, no, but then I said, not really. But then LeBron went on to basically answer the question in a way that gave me the answer that I knew he was going to give and that was the truth and was what I wanted anyway, which was he basically said, look, they've got Boris Diaw out on the perimeter as another uh, 
a ball handler and passer, and when we're scrambling all over the place. And so I, I think you know what happened was in that fourth year that a lot of the things that had worked were no longer working. Uh, the loss of Mike Miller uh, hurt in the locker room. The loss of Joel Anthony hurt in the locker room, and I think that hurt Eric. Uh, because I think there was just sort of a general cloud over the entire team that fourth year. I will, I will say this as, as it compares Eric to Blatt, though. Uh, the one key difference that I've noticed, this is no disrespect to David, uh, but Eric is egoless, basically. Um, you know, if, if players complain about Eric, it's typically about communication skills, but it's never about his ego. Um, you know, Eric is someone who, after they won the championship, he was at Walter Reed Hospital, and they 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 and he introduced himself, and he was said he was told, "I thought Pat Riley was the coach." And Eric laughs about that. Um, Dave, David Blatt's ego is much larger than Eric Spolstra's. David reminded the media all year how many games he won in Europe, that he was not a rookie coach, um, and so I think one of the things that maybe has made it a little bit harder for David with LeBron is that I do think you need to be somewhat egoless. To work with LeBron. I think LeBron is coachable, but I think if you come in sort of with an arrogant posture, I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to work with him. And so they're going to have to sort of smooth that out. That being said, the final thing on this thing is that so much is made of LeBron and his coaches. We talk about it a lot. And really on, on the pecking order of things he cares about, it's pretty far down the list. Um, if he's happy with his teammates the coach becomes somewhat irrelevant. You know, he will lean on other members of the staff. He'll get his point across. The head coach, whether you, whether it was Silas or Mike Brown or uh, or or Eric or David, uh, the, the head coach is not as big a deal. You know, LeBron became much happier this year when they made the trades. You know, David Blatt didn't change. The the team did, uh, and er and 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 LeBron's mood changed. So. I think that David can survive it, you know, if he adjusts a little bit, gives up a little bit more of himself, uh, but also at times, you know, tries to push LeBron to be a better player. And I think that's that's the key thing this year is I thought Eric helped make LeBron better, more efficient. Uh, that's the next step for Blatt and LeBron. Wow, that's a lot of information there uh, to go through, I think. Um, I, You know, it's funny. We were charting a lot of the offensive sets in the 2014 finals, and I, I, that, I was there in Miami. Um, I had even asked Coach Bolstra before the game in the press conference about, you know, some of the play calling as if, you know, I, I think the specific question was something about they ran horns something like 35 times in game two, and it got Chris Bosh a ton of elbow touches, and they won the game. And so the question was, what you know, were they running that set to get Chris Bosh more elbow touches? And, you know, I know that, you know, nobody likes to give up any kind of game plan or, or tip their cards. But I kind of got the impression that, you know, Coach Spo didn't necessarily, you know, that, that maybe he's not calling the sets. That was sort of what I got from that. And also by... By charting them, it was almost like a dartboard. And I can understand why you mentioned that Ray Allen was unhappy. To me, guys like that who need to have a rhythm and a sense of where the shots are coming from, when the call plays, the plays coming out of timeouts and off of stoppages where you can, the coach can have control of the game a little bit, they were just random and they wouldn't run their best sets. So the question was, in my mind was, well, is this like LeBron just sort of taking over and calling whatever set he wants to do at that moment? Well, I don't think it was just LeBron. First thing, Eric is very protective of his play calls. So that that's he does get a little bit, particularly in, in group settings, he, he's going to get a little sort of, not defensive, but he'll back off a little bit and he doesn't want to give up much. But 
I, it wasn't just LeBron. I mean, Dwayne had the ball in his hands quite a bit, too. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the way that it was put to me when all this was going on last year was, yes, in Miami, um, and Eric, and, and I'm sorry, LeBron even said this. He's like, I did a lot of this in Miami. You know, I, you know, and, and LeBron's feeling on this is, if you have Peyton Manning, if you have Tom Brady, would you not give them the right to audible? Um, and I think in that regard, he makes a very good point. I do know that there was a point with Eric uh, where LeBron wanted more control, was given more control, and eventually gave some of it back, basically, because he recognized that th it was becoming sort of too much of a burden uh, to handle all of that. But look, when they got into these pressurized situations, and you mentioned the finals, it was pretty typical for, not again, not just LeBron, but also Dwayne, to you know, sort of break things off, to do it a way that they thought would be a better way to do it. I will say last year, and I can't take credit for this, but my friend Jason Lloyd, who works for the Akron Beacon Journal, had reported uh, after talking to an assistant on Golden State that basically the Warriors had, you know, they knew all of Cleveland's sets. They knew what they were going to do and everything else, but they basically stopped calling them out after the second game because they weren't running any of them. Like they, the, the set would be called, but that's not what they were actually running. So it, essentially this inside information that the Warriors had was completely useless because basically LeBron was running, you know, the set that he was most comfortable with on that possession. So, you know, again, I, I, it happens. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, what kind of value judgment do we put on it? You know, because in football, we don't argue it, right? If, you know, if, if Peyton Manning wants to audible, if Tom Brady, if Aaron Rodgers, or they run check with me or anything else, we say, okay, they're really smart. They saw something. For some reason in the NBA, maybe it's because there have been coaches who've been pushed out by elite players and everything else. I think we view it differently, and we look at it like, okay, he's being insubordinate. But we don't look at it that way in football. And I think one of the other examples is when Tom Brady comes off the field and he's angry at his offensive coordinator, the cameras are not on that. The cameras are back on the Patriot defense, right? But mm -hmm. when LeBron gets angry at David Blatt, and you mentioned the Mark Stein story, the cameras are in that huddle. They're, they're watching them together. So, again, I think some of this is perception. I'm not saying that there aren't times that, that LeBron or Dwayne or Kobe Bryant or Carmelo Anthony or Kevin Durant or any of the elite players in the league might not be better served by listening to the coaches set a little bit more and running it. But I also know that all of those guys at times decide to break it off. Now, one thing about the football comparison, though, is that, you know, when you're calling that audible, everyone is stopped. And right. you have all the time in the world to kind of see what's going on. And I, I know I had a, um, a professor come on of sports uh, from Michigan who wanted to defend LeBron and almost insist that they should have player coaches now. <laughs> And I just feel like you mentioned how LeBron gave some of that power back to Spolstra after he realized how much of a burden that was. So I find it kind of curious that he, I mean, I guess maybe it's not curious. He kind of, it sounds like he reverted back to that in Cleveland when he, in the finals and didn't give up that control again. Well, I think a lot of things happened in Cleveland, to be honest, that were reverting back to pre-Spolstra days. Um, or, or I shouldn't say that, pre-kind of, coming together of Spolster and LeBron days, okay? There was, you know, if you, I mean, the numbers speak to it. The isolations speak to it. Um, the, the playing the three almost exclusively speaks to it. You know, one of, you know, look, like I said, LeBron was an ally of Eric's for the most part in Miami, but the one thing that I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they quarreled about a lot was LeBron playing the four, 
um, that was a, a big sort of sticking point. And it's why uh, LeBron didn't speak publicly about it a lot, although he did when they played against Indiana. He wasn't very happy about having to guard David West on a regular basis, which is understandable. Um, but he he didn't speak about it a lot publicly, but we knew that it was an issue. And one of the reasons that Eric referred to the Heat as positionless so frequently was because he didn't want to characterize LeBron as a power forward, even though that's the position he was playing most of the time. And he was playing it uh, in a lot of situations. I mean, if you look at their numbers, they, they went through a scary stretch in terms of uh, how dynamic they were with LeBron playing the four with spacers, basically, and mm-hmm. Bosch at the five. So, you know, I, I think that what happened this year was, look, LeBron made it very plain that he wanted the ball at the top. He wanted to play essentially point forward uh, quite a bit, um, you know, because I don't know that Kyrie can be classified as a traditional point guard. He was playing right. off the ball as much as he was playing on it. And so I, I think that, that what we saw this this past year was he went back to a lot of the things that he used to do in Cleveland previously and, 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 and also in his first year in Miami. And, you know, he talks about how his efficiency is so important to him and is very proud of that statistic that seven straight years his shooting percentage went up uh, until it, it topped at 56.7 in his last year in Miami. And, of course, you know, he was down in the low 40s for a good portion of the year. He ended up, uh, you know, in the high 40s by the end of the year. And then we saw, obviously, in the finals, particularly, and then the playoffs where he didn't have a lot of help, where the, the shooting percentage, you know, the Chicago series, I think, was 39.9. I think the Atlanta series was also uh, 39.9. So... You know, I, I think what happened was he went back to everybody's like he's playing a new way. In some ways, he was, but he was really playing more sort of the pre-Miami way uh, than anything else. And and again, that's one of the things I'll be curious about. He's so smart, his basketball IQ is so high, and he recognizes these things. And I'm just curious as he goes back in the lab. And when I had him on my radio show on on Sirius, he talked about wanting to improve certain things. There's no doubt in my mind that that the the major thing on his mind this summer is getting his efficiency back over 50%, back where it was. Uh, if they don't have Kyrie for a first couple months, that might be a bit of a challenge. But I think that's a a big big part of it for him is being as efficient as he was, and that means getting the ball in different situations. You know, one of the stats that, that really interested me, and I, again, I don't have the, the exact number off the top of my head now, but Nick, if you look at his assist, his percentage of baskets that were assisted, okay, in Miami compared to, the last year in Miami compared to this year in Cleveland, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it dropped precipitously and then dropped again basically in every playoff series until that bottomed out in the, in the finals where basically nobody was passing to him for a score. At that point, now again, having Kyrie, if Kyrie is you know develops more that part of his game, if he's healthy, that will help. But LeBron had to handle the ball so much at the top and make plays for everybody else this year. They have to figure out a way to get him on the move more often, get him more easy looks because as he gets older, it's going to get harder and harder for him to have to create for everybody all the time. The funny thing with this is that I, you know, he had gotten criticized in the past for maybe passing to a teammate for a game-winning shot. Yes. Even though that was the right play, and I would defend him to no end because that's just wonderful. Here's a star, the best player in the league, who is gonna is willing to make the right play as opposed to just taking. You know, I think Magic even was trying to, of all people, was trying to, you know, criticize him for not taking those shots. And I'm like, there's no way you can look at that and say that he didn't do the right thing. 
So it's weird to me, you know, that he kind of flipped that switch as well. We did a breakdown of all the out of timeout plays in the finals and the efficiency. And the irony was the Warriors, who had been very average during the season, maybe because they were hiding their good out-of-timeout plays, mm-hmm. uh, were elite level had they had you look at that points per possession for the season. And the Cleveland Cavaliers would have been like 27th in the league in efficiency, primarily because out of those timeouts, they were just isolating LeBron in that left corner, on the left elbow. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, no, that, well, that, that's where it went, I mean, basically. And, and again, I mean, I think... Part of this was necessity to a certain degree. I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, they were without two of their three best players. And I, and I think, you know, that has to be taken into account. But the trends kind of were established during the regular season. You know, the best I saw them look the whole year was in Memphis. They, they looked, that was, that was peak Cavs basically last year. That was one of Kevin Love's best games. He was getting the ball in all kinds of different places instead of basically just standing out as a spacer or throwing a couple of early post-ups just to placate him. I mean, he was on the move. He was active. LeBron was looking for him. Uh, that was a game I, I I would have to look at it, but they, they had over 30 assists. I mean, it, they looked scary that night. This was, I believe, in March, okay? And they, they just looked that, – that looked like a team that was, uh, you know, really, really humming on all cylinders. And then, of course – you know, they get to the playoffs. Boston wasn't really a true test, but Kyrie's not right. Then he goes out. Love goes out. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we have to, I think, give them a little bit of a break because of that. But with that being said, the trends had been established during the regular season where they were just a heavy, heavy ISO team. I mean, mm-hmm. they just were. And, um, you know, it's not the interesting thing about it is when LeBron talks about that. It's not the kind of basketball he praises. You know, he ha- he has high praise for the Spurs. He had high praise last year for the Hawks. You know, he was asked last year if if a team with him on it could ever play the way that the Hawks played or the Spurs played. And he, he kind of backed off that. He said, well, it's different. They have me. And that's true. Um, I, I think a team could play that way with him. Uh, but you would have to have a, a very strong head coach, I think, and I think you would have a proven head coach, and I think you would have to have uh, other players around who buy into the same thing. I, I don't know that, you know, again, Kyrie is, is primarily a scorer. Um, that's that's what he does best. Love is a guy who needs touches uh, to feel good about the situation and, and to be his most productive, and even though he's an excellent passer. So I, I just think that they got caught in a situation where, because of personnel, then because of injuries, because of, you know, I wouldn't call it clashes with a coach, but kind of philo- philosophical differences with a coach. Um, and then because of, again, at the end, necessity, where they just became very, very one-dimensional. And eventually, even if you have the best player in the world, and he still is, uh, eventually I, the numbers on that are not going to look very good. And I think that's what you saw. Now, that's the thing, is the way they played uh, in the finals, especially after Game 2, uh, they're going to lose that series, I think, 10 out of 10 times. And particularly, mm-hmm. you know, and we can't ignore that they did, they were down two starters. So that's part of it. But my take on it was, especially looking at the out-of-timeout plays, which is when the coach should have the most influence on a game, right? He's got the clipboard out. What's going to run this play? They're going to draw it up so everyone knows, and then they don't do it. Uh, so my take on it was, imagine if they were only average at, at out-of-timeout plays. That's a game seven with a, with a LeBron James on your team. Then you actually have a shot. At playing, so my take on it is, I, I I would never believe that that was the only way they had a chance to play. I think it was all the more reason to get LeBron moving and let his gravity open up shots, and finally let us see him make his teammates better. 
Uh, I'm almost wondering if, remember when Michael Jordan was first starting and mm -hmm. he wouldn't make his teammates better? Was the really big, uh, loud uh, drum banging about him until finally, frankly, the team got better, right? They just got a lot better players around him, but then he learned to play the triangle. So the question here is, is that it feels like LeBron doesn't necessarily get that criticism. And by the way, I got to make it clear here right now. I love LeBron James. He is the best player in the league. He, he has more, you know, he can do more things than anybody else can. However, when I start to hear the, the mindset and I see him, you know, like when he pushes the coach and he seems like he doesn't, he, he must think the coach on the bench is like some funny guy who wears a suit <laughs> at the end of the bench, right? I don't know what he thinks the role is. So anyway, so my take on that is, is that, you know, it was all the more reason. And we know that Coach Blatt would never have approved any kind of game plan that called for ISO after ISO anyway, based on his coaching record. So, but before I forget, were you around uh, when he pushed uh, um, Coach Blatt in that game on like, the national TV? No, I missed that one in Chicago. I, I didn't see that one. And, and again, there was the... Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. That was earlier in the year. That's right. Chicago was the timeout play. There's so many of these gates run together at this point. But uh, no, I wasn't there. I was at the one in Dallas in 2010 uh, where he nudged Eric and yeah. Eric didn't remember it after the game. Um, you know, look, I, you know, it, w in these situations, you know, again, some of this is heat of the heat of the moment. Yeah. I think what you're talking about with 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 David and him, though. You know, what I was told basically was that from people who witnessed practice in Cleveland, that during training camp, they were running a lot of David's stuff. I mean, they were running it like uh, they were they were running the, you know, all the Princeton stuff that we talked that everybody mm -hmm. talked about is a bring. And then over time, it became less and less and less and less and less. So I'm contradicting myself a little bit here because I talk about how David's you know ego, I felt, got in the way sometimes. But he did. He did cave on a lot of things, too. I mean, he he. He pulled stuff back to allow guys to feel a little bit more comfortable. And again, I think what happened there was then it sort of spirals out of control where, you know, at that point, the coach is trying to put something in and the guys have their own ideas. Now, you know, one example, I mentioned the timeout play in Chicago. That was also the game in which, you know, famously, you know, the, LeBron was supposed to inbound, right? And then, mm -hmm, you know, right. wave that off and, and all the rest of this. Well, Blatt made this point. He was right about this. I mean, there were a couple times earlier in the year where, where LeBron inbounded at the end of the games and they had success with it. I mean, there was a pass to, I believe it was to Tristan Thompson uh, in L.A. against the Clippers that was a game winner. Um, so it wasn't, it, it wasn't as crazy. I think what had happened by then, and I'm probably somewhat responsible for it as part of the media crew that was focusing on Blatt's status, uh, but I think by then there had a narrative been built up basically that – like David wasn't going to get the benefit of the doubt on anything. And I think that's kind of what happened in that game. Now the timeout thing, I can't excuse if the, if the officials had seen that, or if they had decided to call what they'd seen, David might not have a job right now because they would have been down. They would have been down three, one in that series and probably would have lost that series. Maybe Tom Thibodeau is even in Chicago, though. I doubt that. Uh, but, but as far as the other stuff, you know, some of it, I think LeBron could have bent a little bit more, but, but again, um, his feeling is, and, and I understand this, that he knows as much or more about this game as anybody else. And so, you know, a lot of times he's going to trust his own judgment over the judgment of others. You know, it's funny that one thing that doesn't always get talked about too much about that game where he waved them off uh, on the inbounds play was that up until that point, LeBron James was 10 for 29. So another reason why as a coach, I might not be so excited about giving him, you know, a shot. He was not clearly struggling mightily in that game, right? Um, 
I think the other biggest problem with that was, and if I were the coach, I would have fined everybody, was the fact that it got in the media after the game. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was right, and that wasn't just LeBron either. That was that was Jr. Smith, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was Jr. And I think, I, I, from what I recall, I may be wrong about this, but I think Kyrie may have may have hinted at something yeah. also. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, there was. You know, it's funny about the media stuff because I wrote a couple columns because I was up there because I'd been around the Heat that first year. And I wrote a couple columns about how, you know, this was going to be the biggest challenge for this team was that these guys had not been through this. Like playing with LeBron is different than playing with anybody else. You're going to get scrutinized in a way you don't get scrutinized, you know, by the media, you know, as opposed to playing with any other person. And and these guys all said they were ready for it and all the rest of this. And they had a couple of trusty veterans who were very important in that locker room, you know, whether it was James Jones or, or, or Mike Miller had been through the Miami situation or Sean Marion. Um, and, and so all of these guys said, oh, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. And then it just all started erupting like it always does, you know, whether it was mm-hmm. Deion Waiters not coming out for the national anthem or talking about the, you know, that we have the best backcourt in the league or Kevin Love, you know, sort of hinting about being unhappy about his touches or or the stuff with Blatt and LeBron and, you know, and then Kyrie and, and LeBron and, and the you know, the game that Kyrie had no assists. I mean, it just it just <laughs> right. gets to a point where you are going to be under the microscope and it's just it is impossible to handle. You know, you do the best you can. And one of the things James Jones said to me was. He said the thing about Miami that was different, and he said this towards the end of the season, so he had more time to reflect. He said we had all been we 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 were all like we were all sort of made men at that point. Like we we were developed human beings in a basketball sense. Like we knew what our games were. We were veterans. We came together for that. You know, uh, you know, Chris and Dwayne and LeBron were the same age. You know, the other vets that they had in the room, the ones they added, like Shane and like Ray Allen, were like smart guys. You know, <laughs> guys you could count on. You know, they they knew what. And, and so you had a situation where you would say to like Dwayne Wade, "Hey, play your game." Like Dwayne knows what his game is, right? Or knew what his game was. You know, or Chris Bosh, play your game. Or Shane Battier, play your game. Ray Allen, play your game. Cleveland didn't have that. Like these were guys that all they done was lose, really. And so, so what James was saying was, and this JJ, he was saying, it's very hard in that situation to be able to steer a team the right way when when guys don't know what they can fall back on, and they've also found it acceptable to lose because it's all they've done. You know, they you have to compartmentalize losing at a certain point, and they'd lost so much for three years, Tristan and Adela Vadova the year before, and Kyrie and Dion Waiters. And so you get to a certain point where the losing becomes acceptable. And what JJ said was, we had to make the losing unacceptable at a certain point. And that's why, you know, I always remember this, like LeBron, where I sort of, it sort of got to its worst. I don't remember what their record was, but they got, they got hammered in Washington and Dion was dribbling in circles. And so was Kyrie and LeBron was throwing up his hands because he wasn't, the guys weren't listening and Kevin Love was pouting and after the game, I remember seeing LeBron after the locker room, and he's just staring at his shoes, shaking his head. That's all. Looking up, he, I caught his eye a couple times, putting his his eyes back down, shaking his head. And when I talked to JJ about that late in the season, he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, you can tell people, you know, what it takes to win, but they have to do it. <laughs> they have to figure <laughs> right. it out. And and I think that was the extreme frustration that the veterans and, and LeBron was the primary one were feeling. Uh, and I do think really that, that LeBron getting his body healthy uh, coming to Miami for a couple weeks, which by the way, he's going to do here again towards the end of the summer. He's going to spend a couple weeks down here. Um, 
coming to Miami for a couple of weeks, clearing his head, the trades, bringing in guys that were more comfortable. You know, Dion was sort of described to me as a bunch of people by a bunch of people as addition by subtraction in that regard. So getting the locker room more to a place where he had more of the guys that he was comfortable with, uh, guys that were committed, you know, that he said didn't come with agendas. I thought that was a key word that, that he used. You know, they were sort of, they were pure about it. And Jr. was among them, actually. Uh, but Jr. and Shumpert and Mozgov, it really changed the whole dynamic and the mood of the locker room. So, you know, again, I, he, the one thing he won't have to do next year is teach them how to win. You know, and I think going through some adversity in the playoffs um, and being competitive, either, even under those circumstances in the, on the finals, uh, they developed a new identity as a scrappier team, a tougher team. Uh, that will serve them well, particularly if they go through adversity this year. You know, I, w- I wasn't sure I wanted to bring it up, but you did casually mention it just now, uh, the, the trip to Miami last year. Um, here's my observation. Um, he, LeBron, well, actually, if we go back further, and please tell me if you don't want to talk about it, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll throw it out there. Uh, after the finals, they lose. About four weeks after that, we see a picture of LeBron having lost – a ridiculous amount of weight, almost looking like the same person after, you know, and, and he had, he said he stopped eating carbs. Uh, he starts the season without, with very little explosion, does not look like a very, you know, uh, like the normal athlete we've seen LeBron be. He takes two weeks off to go to Miami. Uh, and when he comes back, he regains that explosive athletic uh, ability. Um, comment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go there. I, I, I think, look, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time around his trainer, um, Mike Mancius, over the past few years. I know how hard LeBron works on his body, uh-huh. so I, I can't. I, I know, obviously, look, I know with him, with other guys uh, I cover or have covered that there's a lot of speculation about that that kind of stuff and how how a guy gets stronger in that period of time. But on this kind of stuff, I you know, I take their word for it unless I have some other information. And in this case, I just don't. Fair enough. I mean, I, I think, you know, Dwayne, uh, Derek Rose was once asked about it. I don't know if you ever saw a quote where they asked him on a scale of one to 10, how, is this a problem in the NBA? And uh, he answered, you know, 11 or something like that. But uh, again, I, I don't even know if I care. I feel like why not just make that all legal anyway? But we'll talk about that later. But one thing I want to talk about before we wrap up is, is the, the relationship between Blatt and, and LeBron, like, has that... We did see them have this kind of a, almost an amazing moment right after when they finished the Hawks off, perhaps, and they were on their way mm-hmm. to the finals, and they, they kind of... I don't know if they hugged on the bench, but there was some words spoken. Do, do you think that that kind of... Now that they are men now, they've gone through a bit of that fire, do you, did, did that repair the coach-player relationship as well? I don't know if it if repair is the right word. I think it's always going to be a work in progress. Um, but I do think that, you know, what LeBron said, I remember we were in uh, Columbus before they played the Bulls in the preseason. And LeBron, you know, said, look, you know, they asked him about Blatt and, and his teammates, but in particular Blatt. And he was very upfront. He's like, look, I don't know. I, I won't know until we go through some adversity, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's how he views these things. I mean, he judges his teammates, his coaches, people around him by how they handle adversity. I do know that for the majority of the playoffs last year, he was pretty happy with how his group, his teammates handled adversity until, as he said, after they lost, we just ran out of talent, which I know a lot of people took that as kind of haughty, but I mean, it was true. <laughs> they, they did. They ran out of talent to a certain degree. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, when you're playing Della Vidova 40 minutes, you've probably run out of talent to, in, in a final situation. So I, I think, look, it's going to be scrutinized. 
there's going to be things blown out of proportion that aren't really there. Um, as long as Tyron Lue is on that staff, there's always going to be a question because, look, yeah. LeBron's relationship with him is very strong. He's making a lot of money for an assistant. Um, he was the favorite of some people inside that organization before they hired Blatt. I mean, Alvin Gentry was was the real favorite of some. Uh, Gilbert, you know, was really the one who sort of had the most influence when it came to hiring Blatt. But, um, you know, I think the reason I'm not going to rule out their relationship getting better is because his relationship with Eric got better. I mean, there's no question about it. And I, I don't think it was as contentious the first year as it got at times. You know, again, I think some of it was blown out of proportion in both cases, but, uh, but I, I saw his relationship with Eric evolve to the point where he went from kind of contradicting Eric in the press to parroting Eric in the press and using a lot of Eric's expressions and still does actually like a lot of them. Actually, <laughs> When I'm in Cleveland, sometimes I feel like I'm in Miami because when I'm listening to LeBron, I hear a lot of Eric um, in terms of, in terms of things he says. So, and, and you know, if you talk to people who've covered him longer, they'll say they hear a lot of Mike Brown. So it's not like, it's not like he's ignoring all of this stuff. It's just that he processes and picks and chooses. And, and the biggest thing I'll say about LeBron that just gets totally overlooked with him is just he is extraordinarily intelligent. He just is. And I think sometimes he's looked at, in a, at like a caricature in some ways. People say, oh, yeah, we know he's got basketball IQ. But they don't understand. Like when he deals with the media, he will answer the same question differently from two different people if he knows one and doesn't know the other. I mean, he's his mind is constantly working, whether it's remembering a play from 2008 Okay, or where someone was supposed to be. So, I mean, he's processing everything that everybody is telling him at an extraordinarily high level. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of sometimes because he is he has very strong views and opinions and knows how to play the game. He's going to reject some of it. And, you know, I mentioned Ray Allen earlier. I had this conversation with Ray and this ended up playing out in his last year. I had this conversation with Ray uh, early in his last year. I was doing a story about intelligence in the NBA and kind of the. Uh, you know, what challenges it provides for guys who are really smart, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I talked to Shane about this and I talked to James Jones and Roger Mason and some others who are among the guys I consider to be more intelligent guys I've dealt with. And Ray said, look, you know, it's been a problem for me because, you know, a lot of times the coach thinks I'm undermining him because I might have a different viewpoint on how to do things. And so he feels like it's been a problem for him at times that it's created tension and I think the same is true of LeBron. I mean, LeBron looks up to Ray in an, ex in ex you know, in an extreme way. Uh, he was he was very close with Ray when Ray was in Miami with him, and and I think that LeBron has gotten the you know the perspective of look, I know this game as well as anybody else, and and some things I'm going to be told, I'm going to agree with, and I'm going to process, and I'm going to incorporate, and other things I'm told, you know, they not work for me, and I think that's what we see. But again, with him, everything is a huge story. Well, when we talk about uh, the most um, intelligent players in the NBA, we also could talk about the most intelligent writers we have of the NBA, and you are certainly among that group. Uh, we have been, I've always enjoyed reading yourself at Bleacher Report. I suppose we're not going to get a breaking story here on where <laughs> we're going to find you after this, but uh, you know, at least tell us where we can find you, uh, uh, you know, on Twitter and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I will be somewhere soon. But um, for right now, at Ethan J. Skolnick, E-T-H-A-N-J-S-K-O-L-N-I-C-K, that's where you can find me. Okay, well, don't forget to give him a good follow and we'll read everything he writes because got, he's got the finger on the pulse of the NBA. And Ethan, thanks for joining us. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? You in, Ethan? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like... Swedish techno confusing. 
Bok, bok, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.